Section 55 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 3, Part 2. Christophe found himself in the street once more, absolutely crushed. He walked at random. He did not know where he was going. He walked down several streets mechanically, and then found himself at a station of the train by which he had come. He went back by it, without thinking of what he was doing. He sank down on the seat with his arms and legs limp. It was impossible to think or to collect his ideas. He thought of nothing. He did not try to think. He was afraid to envisage himself. He was utterly empty. It seemed to him that there was emptiness everywhere about him in that town. He could not breathe in it. The mists, the mass of houses, stifled him. He had only one idea, to fly, to fly as quickly as possible, as if by escaping from the town he would leave in it the bitter disillusion which he had found in it. He returned to his hotel. It was half-past twelve. It was two hours since he had entered it, with what a light shining in his heart. Now it was dead. He took no lunch. He did not go up to his room. To the astonishment of the people of the hotel, he asked for his bill, paid as though he had spent the night there, and said that he was going. In vain did they explain to him that there was no hurry, that the train he wanted to go by did not leave for hours, and that he had much better wait in the hotel. He insisted on going to the station at once. He was like a child. He wanted to go by the first train, no matter which, and not to stay another hour in the place. After the long journey and all the expense he had incurred, although he had taken his holiday not only to see Hustler, but the museums, and to hear concerts, and to make certain acquaintances, he had only one idea in his head, to go. He went back to the station. As he had been told, his train did not leave for three hours, and also the train was not express, for Christophe had to go by the cheapest class, stopped on the way. Christophe would have done better to go by the next train, which went two hours later and caught up the first, but that meant spending two more hours in the place, and Christophe could not bear it. He would not even leave the station while he was waiting, a gloomy period of waiting in those vast and empty halls, dark and noisy, where strange shadows were going in and out, always busy, always hurrying, strange shadows who meant nothing to him, all unknown to him, not one friendly face. The misty day died down. The electric lamps, enveloped in fog, flushed the night and made it darker than ever. Christophe grew more and more depressed as time went on, waiting in agony for the time to go. Ten times an hour he went to look at the train indicators to make sure that he had not made a mistake. As he was reading them once more from end to end to pass the time, the name of a place caught his eye. He thought he knew it. It was only after a moment that he remembered that it was where old Schultz lived, who had written him such kind and enthusiastic letters. In his wretchedness, the idea came to him of going to see his unknown friend. The town was not on the direct line on his way home, but a few hours away, by a little local line. It meant a whole night's journey, with two or three changes and interminable waits. Christophe never thought about it. He decided suddenly to go. He had an instinctive need of clinging to sympathy of some sort. 
he gave himself no time to think and telegraphed to Schultz to say that he would arrive next morning. Hardly had he sent the telegram than he regretted it. He laughed bitterly at his eternal illusions. Why go to meet a new sorrow? But it was done now. It was too late to change his mind. These thoughts filled his last hour of waiting. His train at last was ready. He was the first to get into it, and he was so childish that he only began to breathe again when the train shook, and through the carriage window he could see the outlines of the town fading into the grey sky under the heavy downpour of the night. He thought he must have died if he had spent the night in it. At the very hour, about six in the evening, a letter from Hassler came for Christophe at his hotel. Christophe's visit stirred many things in him. The whole afternoon he had been thinking of it bitterly, and not without sympathy for the poor boy who had come to him with such eager affection to be received so coldly. He was sorry for that reception, and a little angry with himself. In truth, it had been only one of those fits of sulky whimsies to which he was subject. He thought to make it good by sending Christophe a ticket for the opera, and a few words appointing a meeting after the performance. Christophe never knew anything about it. When he did not see him, Hassler thought, He is angry, so much the worse for him. He shrugged his shoulders and did not wait long for him. Next day Christophe was far away, so far that all eternity would not have been enough to bring them together, and they were both separated forever. Peter Schultz was seventy-five. He had always had delicate health, and age had not spared him. He was fairly tall, but stooping, and his head hung down to his chest. He had a weak throat and difficulty in breathing. Asthma, catarrh, bronchitis were always upon him, and the marks of the struggles he had to make, many a night sitting up in his bed, bending forward, dripping with sweat in the effort to force a breath of air into his stifling lungs, were in the sorrowful lines on his long, thin, clean-shaven face. His nose was long and a little swollen at the top. Deep lines came from under his eyes and crossed his cheeks that were hollow from his toothlessness. Age and infirmity had not been the only sculptors of that poor wreck of a man. The sorrows of life also had had their share in its making. And in spite of all, he was not sad. There was kindness and serenity in his large mouth. But in his eyes especially there was that which gave a touching softness to the old face. They were light gray, limpid, and transparent. They looked straight, calmly, and frankly. They had nothing of the soul. Its depths could be read in them. His life had been uneventful. He had been alone for years. His wife was dead. She was not very good or very intelligent, and she was not at all beautiful. But he preserved a tender memory of her. It was twenty-five years since he had lost her, and he had never once failed a night to have a little imaginary conversation, sad and tender, with her before he went to sleep. He shared all his doings with her. He had had no children. That was the great sorrow of his life. He had transferred his need of affection to his pupils, to whom he was attached as a father to his sons. He had found very little return. An old heart can feel very near to a young heart, and almost of the same age, knowing how brief are the years that lie between them. But the young man never has any idea of that. To him an old man is a man of another age, and besides, he is absorbed by his immediate anxieties and instinctively turns away from the melancholy end of all his efforts. 
Old Schultz had sometimes found gratitude in his pupils, who were touched by the keen and lively interest he took in everything good or ill that happened to them. They used to come and see him from time to time. They used to write and thank him when they left the university. Some of them used to go on writing occasionally during the years following. And then old Schultz would hear nothing more of them except in the papers which kept him informed of their advancement, and he would be as glad of their success as though it was his own. He was never hurt by their silence. He found a thousand excuses for it. He never doubted their affection, and used to ascribe even to the most selfish the feelings that he had for them. But his books were his greatest refuge. They neither forgot nor deceived him. The souls which he cherished in them had risen above the flood of time. They were inscrutable, fixed for eternity in the love they inspired and seemed to feel, and gave forth once more to those who loved them. He was professor of aesthetics and the history of music, and he was like an old wood quivering with the songs of birds. Some of these songs sounded very far away. They came from the depths of the ages, but they were not the least sweet and mysterious of all. Others were familiar and intimate to him, dear companions. Their every phrase reminded him of the joys and sorrows of his past life, conscious or unconscious. For under every day lit by the light of the sun there are unfolded other days lit by a light unknown. And there were some songs that he had never yet heard, songs which said the things that he had been long awaiting and needing. And his heart opened to receive them like the earth to receive rain. And so old Schultz listened, in the silence of his solitary life, to the forest filled with birds and, like the monk of the legend, who slept in the ecstasy of the song of the magic bird, the years passed over him, and the evening of life was come. But still he had the heart of a boy of twenty. He was not only rich in music, he loved the poets, old and new. He had a predilection for those of his own country, especially for Goethe, but he also loved those of other countries. He was a learned man and could read several languages. In mind he was a contemporary of Herder and the great Weltberger the citizens of the world, of the end of the eighteenth century. He had lived through the years of bitter struggle which preceded and followed seventy, and was immersed in their vast idea. And although he adored Germany, he was not vainglorious about it. He thought, with Herder, that among all vainglorious men, he who is vainglorious of his nationality is the completest fool. And with Schiller, that, it is a poor ideal only to write for one nation. And he was timid of mind, but his heart was large and ready to welcome lovingly everything beautiful in the world. Perhaps he was too indulgent with mediocrity, but his instinct never doubted as to what was the best. And if he was not strong enough to condemn the sham artists admired by public opinion, he was always strong enough to defend the artists of originality and power whom public opinion disregarded. His kindness often led him astray. He was fearful of committing any injustice, and when he did not like what others liked, he never doubted but that it must be he who was mistaken, and he would manage to love it. It was so sweet to him to love. Love and admiration were even more necessary to his moral being than air to his miserable lungs. And so how grateful he was to those who gave him a new opportunity of showing them Christophe could have no idea of what his leader had been to him. He himself had not felt them nearly so keenly when he had written them. 
His songs were to him only a few sparks thrown out from his inner fire. He had cast them forth and would cast forth others. But to old Schultz they were a whole world suddenly revealed to him, a whole world to be loved. His life had been lit up by them. A year before he had had to resign his position at the university. His health, growing more and more precarious, prevented his lecturing. He was ill and in bed when Wolf's library had sent him, as usual, a parcel of the latest music they had received, and in it were Christoph's leader. He was alone. He was without relatives. The few that he had had were long since dead. He was delivered into the hands of an old servant, who profited by his weakness to make him do whatever she liked. A few friends, hardly younger than himself, used to come and see him from time to time, but they were not in very good health either, and when the weather was bad they too stayed indoors and missed their visits. It was winter then and the streets were covered with melting snow. Schultz had not seen anybody all day. It was dark in the room. A yellow fog was drawn over the windows like a screen, making it impossible to see out. The heat of the stove was thick and oppressive. From the church hard by, an old peal of bells of the seventeenth century chimed every quarter of an hour, haltingly and horribly out of tune, scraps of monotonous chants which seemed grim in their hardiness to Schultz when he was far from gay himself. He was coughing, propped up by a heap of pillows. He was trying to read Montaigne, whom he loved, but now he did not find as much pleasure in reading him as usual. He let the book fall and was breathing with difficulty and dreaming. The parcel of music was on the bed. He had not the courage to open it. He was sad at heart. At last he sighed, and when he had very carefully untied the string, he put on his spectacles and began to read the pieces of music. His thoughts were elsewhere, always returning to memories which he was trying to thrust aside. The book he was holding was Christophe's. His eyes fell on an old canticle, the words of which Christophe had taken from a simple, pious poet of the seventeenth century, and had modernized them. The Christliches Wanderlied, the Christian Wanderer's Song, of Paul Gerhardt. Haf, o du arme Seele, haf und sei unverzacht, en warte nur der Zeit, so wirst du schon erblicken, die Sonne der schonsten Freude. Hope, oh, thou wretched soul, hope, hope, and be valiant. Only wait then, wait, and surely thou shalt see the sun of lovely joy. Old Schultz knew the ingenuous words, but never had they so spoken to him, never so nearly. It was not the tranquil piety soothing and lulling the soul by its monotony. It was a soul like his own. It was his own soul, but younger and stronger, suffering, striving to hope, striving to see, and seeing joy. His hands trembled. Great tears trickled down his cheeks. He read on. Auf, auf, gib deinem Schmerze und sorgen gute Nacht. Lass fahren, was das Herze betrubt und traurig macht. Up, up, and give thy sorrow, and all thy cares good night, and all that grieves and saddens thy heart be put to flight. Christophe brought to these thoughts a boyish and valiant ardor, and the heroic laughter in it showed forth in the last naive and confident verses. Bist du doch nicht regenta, der alles führen soll, Gott sitzt im Regimente und führet alles wohl.
Not thou thyself art ruler, whom all things must obey, but God is Lord decreeing, all follows in his way. And when there came the superbly defiant stanzas, which in his youthful barbarian insolence he had calmly plucked from their original position in the poem to form the conclusion of his lead, Und obgleich alle Teufel hier wollten widerstehen, so wird doch ohne Zweifel gat nicht so gehen, was er im vorgenommen und was er haben will, das muss doch endlich roamen zu seinem Zweck und Ziel. And even though all devils came and opposed his will, there were no cause for doubting, God will be steadfast still. What he has undertaken, all his divine decree, exactly as he ordered, at last shall all things be. Then there were transports of delight, the intoxication of war, the triumph of a Roman imperator. The old man trembled all over. Breathlessly he followed the impetuous music like a child dragged along by a companion. His heart beat. Tears trickled down. He stammered, Oh my God! Oh my God! He began to sob, and he laughed. He was happy. He choked. He was attacked by a terrible fit of coughing. Salome, the old servant, ran to him, and she thought the old man was going to die. He went on crying and coughing and saying over and over again, Oh, my God! Oh, my God! And in the short moments of respite between the fits of coughing, he laughed a little hysterically. Salome thought he was going mad. When at last she understood the cause of his agitation, she scolded him sharply. "'How can anybody get into such a state over a piece of foolery? Give it me. I shall take it away. You shan't see it again.' But the old man held firm in the midst of his coughing, and he cried to Salome to leave him alone. As she insisted, he grew angry, swore, and choked himself with his oaths. Never had she known him to be angry and to stand out against her. She was aghast and surrendered her prize but she did not mince her words with him. She told him he was an old fool, and said that hitherto she had thought she had to do with a gentleman, but that now she saw her mistake, that he said things which would make a ploughman blush, that his eyes were starting from his head, and if they had been pistols would have killed her. She would have gone on for a long time in that strain if he had not got up furiously on his pillow and shouted at her, Go! in so peremptory a voice that she went slamming the door and declaring that he might call her as much as he liked, only she would not put herself out and would leave him alone to kick the bucket. Then silence descended upon the darkening room. Once more the bells pealed placidly and grotesquely through the calm evening. A little ashamed of his anger, old Schultz was lying on his back, motionless, waiting, breathless, for the tumult in his heart to die down. He was clasping the precious leader to his breast and laughing like a child. He spent the following days of solitude in a sort of ecstasy. He thought no more of his illness, of the winter, of the grey light, or of his loneliness. Everything was bright and filled with love about him. So near to death, he felt himself living again in the young soul of an unknown friend. He tried to imagine Christophe. He did not see him as anything like what he was. He saw him rather as an idealized version of himself, as he would have liked to be, fair, slim, with blue eyes, and a gentle, quiet voice, soft, timid, and tender. He idealized everything about him, his pupils, his neighbors, his friends, his old servant. 
His gentle, affectionate disposition and his want of the critical faculty, in part voluntary, so as to avoid any disturbing thought, surrounded him with serene, pure images like himself. It was the kindly lying which he needed if he were to live. He was not altogether deceived by it, and often in his bed at night he would sigh as he thought of a thousand little things which had happened during the day to contradict his idealism. He knew quite well that old Salome used to laugh at him behind his back with her gossips, and that she used to rob him regularly every week. He knew that his pupils were obsequious with him while they had need of him, and that after they had received all the services they could expect from him, they deserted him. He knew that his former colleagues at the university had forgotten him altogether since he had retired, and that his successor attacked him in his articles, not by name, but by some treacherous allusion, and by quoting some worthless thing that he had said, or by pointing out his mistakes, a procedure very common in the world of criticism. He knew that his old friend Kuntz had lied to him that very afternoon, and that he would never see again the books which his other friend, Pat Petschmidt, had borrowed for a few days which was hard for a man who, like himself, was as attached to his books as to living people. Many other sad things, old or new, would come to him. He tried not to think of them, but they were there all the same. He was conscious of them. Sometimes the memory of them would pierce him like some rending sorrow. Oh, my God! My God! He would groan in the silence of the night, and then he would discard such harmful thoughts. He would deny them. He would try to be confident and optimistic and to believe in human truth, and he would believe. How often had his illusions been brutally destroyed, but always others springing into life, always, always, he could not do without them. The unknown Christophe became a fire of warmth to his life. The first cold, ungracious letter which he received from him would have hurt him, perhaps it did so, but he would not admit it, and it gave him a childish joy. He was so modest, and asked so little of men, that the little he received from them was enough to feed his need of loving and being grateful to them. To see Christophe was a happiness which he had never dared to hope for, for he was too old now to journey to the banks of the Rhine, and as for asking Christophe to come to him, the idea had never even occurred to him. Christophe's telegram reached him in the evening, just as he was sitting down to dinner. He did not understand at first. He thought he did not know the signature. He thought there was some mistake that the telegram was not for him. He read it three times. In his excitement, his spectacles would not stay on his nose. The lamp gave a very bad light, and the letters danced before his eyes. When he did understand, he was so overwhelmed that he forgot to eat. In vain did Salome shout at him. He could not swallow a morsel. He threw his napkin on the table, unfolded, a thing he never did, he got up, hobbled to get his hat and stick, and went out. Old Schultz's first thought on receiving such good news was to go and share it with others, and to tell his friends of Christophe's coming. He had two friends who were music-mad like himself, and he had succeeded in making them share his enthusiasm for Christophe. Judge Samuel Kuntz and the dentist, Oscar Potpetschmidt, who was an excellent singer. The three old friends had often talked about Christophe, and they had played all his music that they could find. Potpetschmidt sang, Schultz accompanied, and Kuntz listened. They would go into ecstasies for hours together. How often had they said while they were playing, Ah, if only Kraft were here! Schultz laughed to himself in the street for the joy he had and was going to give. 
Night was falling, and Kunz lived in a little village half an hour away from the town. But the sky was clear. It was a soft April evening. The nightingales were singing. Old Schultz's heart was overflowing with happiness. He breathed without difficulty. He walked like a boy. He strode along gleefully, without heeding the stones against which he kicked in the darkness. He turned blithely into the side of the road when carts came along, and exchanged a merry greeting with the drivers, who looked at him in astonishment when the lamps showed the old man climbing up the bank of the road. Night was fully come when he reached Kunz's house, a little way out of the village, in a little garden. He drummed on the door and shouted at the top of his voice. A window was opened, and Kunz appeared in alarm. He peered through the door and asked, "'Who is there? What is it?' Schultz was out of breath, but he called gladly, "'Kraft! Kraft is coming to-morrow!' Kunz did not understand, but he recognized the voice. "'Schultz! What? At this hour? What is it?' Schultz repeated. "'To-morrow! He is coming to-morrow morning!' "'What?' asked Kunz, still mystified. "'Kraft!' cried Schultz. Kunz pondered the word for a moment. Then a loud exclamation showed that he had understood. "'I am coming down!' he shouted. The window was closed. He appeared on the steps with a lamp in his hand and came down into the garden. He was a little stout old man with a large gray head, a red beard, red hair on his face and hands. He took little steps, and he was smoking a porcelain pipe. This good-natured, rather sleepy little man had never worried much about anything. For all that, the news brought by Schultz excited him. He waved his short arms and his lamp and asked, "'What? Is it him? Is he really coming?' "'Tomorrow morning,' said Schultz, triumphantly waving the telegram. The two old friends went and sat on a seat in the arbor. Schultz took the lamp. Kunz carefully unfolded the telegram and read it slowly in a whisper. Schultz read it again aloud over his shoulder. Kunz went on looking at the paper, the marks on the telegram, the time when it had been sent, the time when it had arrived, the number of words. Then he gave the precious paper back to Schultz, who was laughing happily looked at him and wagged his head and said, "'Ah, well! Ah, well!' After a moment's thought, and after drawing in and expelling a cloud of tobacco smoke, he put his hand on Schultz's knee and said, "'We must tell Schmidt.' "'I was going to him,' said Schultz. "'I will go with you,' said Kunz. He went in and put down his lamp and came back immediately. The two old men went on arm in arm. Schmidt lived at the other end of the village, Schultz and Kunz exchanged a few absent words, but they were both pondering the news. Suddenly Kunz stopped and whacked on the ground with his stick. "'Oh, Lord!' he said. "'He is away!' He had remembered that Potpetschmidt had had to go away that afternoon for an operation at a neighboring town where he had to spend the night and stay a day or two. Schultz was distressed. Kunz was equally put out. They were proud of Potpetschmidt. They would have liked to show him off. They stood in the middle of the road and could not make up their minds what to do. "'What shall we do? What shall we do?' asked Kunz. "'Kraft absolutely must hear Potpetschmidt,' said Schultz. He thought for a moment and said, "'We must send him a telegram.' They went to the post office, and together they composed a long and excited telegram of which it was very difficult to understand a word. And then they went back. Schultz reckoned, "'He could be here tomorrow morning if he took the first train.' But Kunz pointed out that it was too late, and that the telegram would not be sent until the morning. Schultz nodded, and they said, "'How unfortunate!' They parted at Kunz's door, for in spite of his friendship for Schultz, 
it did not go so far as to make him commit the imprudence of accompanying Schultz outside the village, and even to the end of the road by which he would have had to come back alone in the dark. It was arranged that Kunz should dine on the morrow with Schultz. Schultz looked anxiously at the sky. If only it is fine tomorrow! And his heart was a little lighter when Kunz, who was supposed to have a wonderful knowledge of meteorology, looked gravely at the sky for he was no less anxious than Schultz that Christophe should see their little countryside in all its beauty, and said, It will be fine tomorrow. End of section 55